ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Hey folks, this is Justin Rosero of the Place to Be Podcast. You are listening to, I'd say, number uh, co-number one best podcast in the world, and that is, of course, Where the Big Boys Play. Parv, Chad, take it away, boys. You're listening to Where the Big Boys Play. This is part two of our review of WrestleWar89. Lance Russell uh, is with Sting now, who has some oddly gay face paint on today. He's slightly gayer than usual. I don't know, like, he's kind of shaped it so that it kind of ends with his eyebrows. Um, and he's uh, excited and ready for the Iron Sheik. Um, just uh, just before moving on, uh, this has been a, a kind of ongoing talking point uh, with us, but Lee, I, I thought I'll ask you, what do you think of uh, Sting as a, as a kind of all-time type guy? Um, Dave Meltzer's uh, got a Hall of Fame, Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, uh, and it's often talked about, like, Sting isn't in it, basically. And there's a lot of talk about whether he should be in it or not. Um, do you have any kind of thoughts on Sting, career, his worth, the rest of it? Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with um, Sting being that kind of, um, that measuring stick, you know. Do you get in the Hall of Fame? Do you not get in? And Dick Murdoch and Ian Anderson and Sting for years have been looked at as those guys, you know, if they're not in, does this guy deserve to be in? Um, <clears throat> when WCW first, when I first saw it on television here, Sting was absolutely the guy. So I've kind of grown up, um, I watched uh, Bleach Blonde Surfer Sting, I've watched Crow Sting, and when I see Sting now in TNA, I don't see a sad old guy, you know, holding on to the past. I see a, a genuine legend. Um, for me personally, just as a fan in my heart, he's absolutely worthy of that. Um, I do understand the criticisms that he wasn't the best worker at times. He wasn't the best talker. He um, he wasn't always the biggest draw. You know, the fact that Starcade 97 was WCW's biggest pay-per-view was as much the idea that Hogan was going to lose the belt to one of WCW's guys and you know, and Hogan has this this history of pay-per-view main events and record numbers and that kind of thing that Sting doesn't necessarily have. Um, but you know, but to me, he's he's always been he's always been one of my favourites, and he's always been um, kind of one of the the principal figures. Whether I've watched WCW or whether I've watched TNA, or, you know, and I I just think he's I I think he deserves it. But but part of that might be a little bit of bias, being that you know he was one of my very early favourites. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I was a big I was a big Ultimate Warrior fan as well, and I absolutely wouldn't advocate him for for Meltzer's Hall of Fame for WWE's certainly, but not for you know a legitimate Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah and I think I think that uh, a lot of people struggle with those uh, same feelings, Lee, um, when it comes to Sting and the the Hall of Fame, but. I have to say that after being through 
the argument with you know several of the heavyweights who are against the idea of it. Um, I come to the conclusion that if there are any objective yardsticks, he can't go in based on the fact that he was never a proven draw, which sounds bizarre to say. Um, but if you look at the numbers, they, they, they don't back him up, unfortunately. Yeah. And anyway, um, let's uh, TV title match now. It's Sting versus the Iron Sheik, um, who reminds Gary Michael Capetta to mention the fact that he's a former world champion at the start, which amused me a little bit. Um, so, basically, Sheik jumps Sting at the start of this match with his flag um, and then chokes him with a rag. Uh, Sting comes back and chokes uh, Sheik with his head cloth. Um, we get a gut wrench suplex by Sheik and not even a good one. Um, and then a clothesline from him. Sting comes back. Stinger splash. Scorpion deathlock. Sheik submits. Um, and I get the impression that he couldn't really go more than about three or four minutes at this point. So, Jason, I'll go to you first. Uh, yeah, Sheik looked pretty old and feeble, um, even at this point. Um, you know, obviously there was nothing to it, but you get the thing with uh, Sting uh, being put over by an, an old uh, WWF veteran, which I assume was the idea with uh, Muta and Junkyard Dog, but obviously Junkyard Dog did the no-show, but we're, you know, we're building to the Muta-Sting feud, so it kind of makes sense for them to... Um, you know, be the hot young guys beating the old WWF guys and then facing each other. Lee? Yeah, I think that um, for me, seeing the Iron Sheik in the NWA is, is again one of those um, kind of kind of weird, you know, it sort of doesn't feel right. A bit like um, we saw earlier with uh, with Orton and with Murdoch where Compared to guys like Sting, like Luger, new guys, big, strong, powerful guys, guys like Steamboat who were still in their primes, these guys now look past their prime, and it, it really wasn't much of a match. Um, but I can see the value in bringing a guy like Iron Sheik in, especially as you mentioned, you know, making a deal out of the fact that he is a former world champion and then sort of feeding him to Sting. Um, I guess knowing that down the line, Sting is seen as one of those guys who's going to be the NWA champion. So, you know, I think it's got its value in, in that sense, but it's not really like a lasting value where you look at it years later and go, yeah, that was a, a great match. I'm glad I watched that. It was just a, just your standard sort of squash match of the day with a, with a former name. Chad? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, you know, nothing, nothing much to this at all. Uh, good, Solid, strong victory for Sting, and then uh, that's about all you can really say for this. The, the most surprising thing for me uh, about this is that after this point, so this is Iron Sheik in 1989, after this point, he still has a main event at SummerSlam 91. It's, I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. I, I, I've never understood the idea of bringing him in as Colonel Mustafa for that angle. It's, it's like the stupidest main event in... I'd say 20 years of of WF that because th there's just no way that Hogan or Warrior are facing any sort of threat there. Slaughter, Colonel Mustafa, and General Adnan. I mean that's easily the worst main event I can think of. T to me, as a kid, even as a kid, then 
the fact that it was three on two, but the two were Hogan and Warrior, I always felt like Slaughter's team were the ones that were actually at a disadvantage, which is kind of, you know, how weak the other two were. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, you had a manager, and basically Iron Sheik, ten years past his prime. Yeah. Yeah. And even Slaughter was getting up there, too. But yeah. One thing I want to say about uh, Sting Sheik that I forgot to mention is there's a... Um, there's an angle involving Iron Sheik um, using his clubs and trying to get Sting uh, to do the uh, Persian clubs uh, trick. And it's kind of a variation on an angle that Sheik would usually um, would do in a lot of territories, and it would usually end up with Sheik attacking the other guy. Uh, but in this case, it is probably the one time in professional wrestling history that Sting actually outsmarted someone. <laughs> yeah, they, they actually showed that on the uh, on the countdown. That oh, okay, very good. If yeah. ever there is a, a genuine reason for Sting not being in the Hall of Fame, it is in fact the amount of times he was that gullible <laughs> and let partners turn on him. Yeah, the the fact that he remains Lex Luger uh, friends with Lex Luger to this day is uh, something I'll never understand. If I was double crossed that many times by someone, they wouldn't be my friend anymore. Um. Okay, Lance uh, Russell is with Ricky Steamboat now, who gives a very straight-laced uh, promo um, about... And d- there is this line that he... A kind of curious line that he keeps on saying that there are other challenges out there. It's almost like Steamboat wants to move beyond this feud um, and face other guys, you know, just be the champ type thing. Um, so I think that's an interesting little kind of side story to this whole feud. Because Steamboat's been going on that note for quite a while now, past couple of shows. Any thoughts well, on that, they, they kept saying that this was Steamboat's uh, last chance, or Flair's last chance to regain the title. Yeah. Uh, which, to me, I, I, I didn't really kind of like that, because that sort of gave away the finish, but that is a narrative they were working with. So, now it's time for the third part of the, uh, of the Holy Trilogy. Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat. Flair enters with 40 women lining the aisle. Um, So they must have basically hired an entire model agency here. Um, Or maybe even two or three model agencies for the amount of women that are greeting Flair. I'm not trying to be uncharitable here, but I think that um, these women are described as lovelies, and calling some of them lovelies is a bit of a stretch. So my guess is the modeling agency was not necessarily involved, may have been more of a rounding up uh, on the uh, streets type of thing. (laughs) Or or they could just be like the wrestlers' wives or something, you know. Um, uh, Steamboat comes out with his son on a white pony. Um, and his wife by his side. Now, did they put some sort of horn on this pony to make it look like a unicorn? Was, or was I seeing things? There was something on this pony's forehead, I thought. Anyone I see it? I didn't notice that. I did not notice either. <laughs> um, I thought this was a little bizarre. Not explain why uh, Steamboat Junior is coming on on a white pony. Although I will well, say... There- they're in Nashville, so that's the whole cowboy thing. And of course. So, right, okay, so he was dressed... Kind of, a, kind of like a playoff of Gene Autry. Right. And he's kind of... Plus, it's the, it's, it's the dichotomy as well of, of Flair being the ladies' man and Steamboat being the family man. Yeah, um, 
I did notice his son has grown quite a lot since uh, last time we saw him. He, he, he seems to have basically put on an inch or so in, in the last month. I, I suppose uh, kids grow quick, right? Um, we get, uh, as this starts out, we get some signature arm drags um, and some uh, slap exchanges where they, they slap each other in the face. Um, now guys, as with all of the Flare Steamboat matches, it goes quite long. So don't be afraid to butt in while I'm uh, going through this, okay? Uh, I try I try to keep it as short as I can. Um, the uh, the announcers put over the idea that the judges are um, changing the dynamic of the match here. That because they're looking for offense, both guys have to go out on the front foot. We get two big flare chops. Steamer comes back um, with some absolutely massive chops of his own. Um, flare takes a t tumble to the outside. Steamboat works on the arm for the next few minutes. Flair comes back with four arms to Steamboat's head. Um, Steamboat with multiple chops uh, get, gets a Flair flop. Uh, back to the arm. Uh, Ross reckons that he's um, setting up for the uh, double chicken winning again, which was quite interesting. Um, this to me is a slower, more technical match than the previous two so far. Uh, it's been definitely worked at a slower pace. Um, and the judges give their verdicts at this point, and they both, all of all three of the judges put Steamboat ahead at the 15-minute mark. And I, I'm going to pause at this point to gather thoughts on this first 15-minute segment. Um, Chad, I'll go to you first. Um, well, as I get into my analysis of this, I will say that uh, I, I think this is a tale of two matches, and what we've discussed. Uh, first, I want to say that. I think sometimes you hear, and I've heard this narrative before, that this match is sort of greatest hits version of their uh, of their other matches, where they kind of condense down a lot of the stuff in Clash Six and a, a shorter match here. I disagree with that. I think there's a couple of different narratives going on in this match that were not present in Clash Six. And uh, right here we see the kind of technical prowess of Steamboat. And the first part of this match really shows, kind of goes into the fact that you think Flair uh, might have met his match. That Steamboat really does have Flair's number. Uh, he constantly switches his attack on the arm. He does a lot of different interesting things to keep the arm work uh, from not dragging out too long. And it makes sense because he's setting him up for the uh, cross-based chicken wing, which was so successful in their uh, clash match. So that's basically where we're at so far up to this point. It's just Steamboat really cranking out his technical prowess over Flair. Leo, Jason, any further thoughts? Uh, I do, um, I, I agree with that, and I think that, um, you know, one thing that's so great about the Steamboat Flare matches is everything seems to have a purpose. I mean, even, you know, obviously when they're doing headlock exchanges or when they're doing stuff on the mat, it's all working toward a goal, and you can see that goal. Um, I love, I mean, I, I think this match may have my favorite chop exchange of just them going back and forth and, you know, going around the ring and you can see the pain and the anguish that they're, that they're feeling. And it's, um, you know, as you'd expect, it's wonderful. And I do think that there's a lot of, um, you know, 
early on the, the stuff with um, Steamboat going for the arm and, um, you know, and, and the, the different ways he uses to attack it and even things like trying to roll over his shoulder just to, to get a near fall to see if he can sneak one in or maybe get in Flair's head or whatever. I mean, that, that stuff is all wonderful. Lee? Yeah, I mean, um, you guys have pretty much covered it. Something that I've um, noticed from writing these Colosseum video books is sometimes it's a lot easier to write about something that's bad um, than to come up with superlatives for something that's really great. Um, I mean, all, all I'll really say is that if for anyone who's like a fan of the NWA or Crockett, you should have seen this match and all of the Flair Steamboat matches um, by now. And if you haven't, you absolutely must go and watch those matches. Um, this is for me, the reason to see this show. Um, but personally, um, I know that this is lauded as a as a classic match for all time and a five-star match, and I have absolutely no dispute with that. I just don't see why people prefer this one over the Clash of the Champions mm -hmm. match. That one's always been my favourite of, of their 89 series. Well, we... we I think we can get back to that question um, in a moment, and we, we, we will definitely talk about three matches um, and how they compare, and it's a talking point in the Meltzer as well, um, and his take on it is quite interesting too. Um, let me just go go to the, uh, get to the finish here, so um, I'll go through uh, the rest of this. Um, so the judges have put uh, Steamboat Head after 15 minutes. Um, it's all been Steamboat so far, basically, and he's been relentless. Um, Flair has very briefly been on top, but Steamboat has always found a way to come back. Right now, he goes back to the arm. Um, Flair comes back and gets a belly-to-back suplex and a knee drop and a butterfly suplex and an elbow drop and a shotgun. Um, I don't recall seeing Flair do a shotgun in any of the previous matches. Um, we get a nice, um, uh, this is basically a nice period on top from uh, Flair, um, and he shows us, you know, bits of his repertoire that we don't always see, um, and basically the, this 15 minutes now flies by, so the first 15 minutes is kind of um, slower and more technical, the second 15 minutes I think basically whizzes by without, um, you know, it feels like, you know, three minutes rather than rather than 15. Um, we get a big suplex uh, outside by Flair uh, on the on the blue mats there. Um, the judges at this point, uh, Funk goes for Flair, O'Connor goes for Flair, and Thayers goes for Steamboat. So the, the scores are basically 4-2 to Steamboat on points. Um, Steamboat is basically full of fire now, and he gives eight chops uh, to uh, Flair's head, a backdrop, Flair begs off, um, Steamboat goes for uh, an inside cradle, uh, which gets two. Um, he gets a superplex, and after the uh, superplex, he goes for the uh, double chicken wing, um, and this really looks like it's going to be the finish here, but no, Flair gets to the ropes, um, and I've just noted that it's great psychology from Steamboat to go back to the move that worked for him last time, um, and also to go from the superplex to the... A chicken wing, you know, weakening the back um, after he's been working the uh, arm for the entire match. He also um, attacks the other 
thing that the chicken wing uh, uh, hurts. Steamboat goes uh, to top, um, but uh, Flair shakes the ropes and uh, Steamboat falls uh, to the floor, um, which hurts his leg. We get a big vertical suplex back in by Flair. Flair goes for the figure four now, um, but it doesn't stay on for too long. Um, he attacks the leg over the next few minutes. Steamboat goes for an inside cradle, but Flair reverses it to pin uh, and gets the one, two, three. So that's it. Flair is the new six-time world champion, um, and Steamboat, like the sporting nice guy that he is, raises Flair's hand uh, high. So, um, I think with each of your comments here, as well as talking about this match, uh, we will also foreground the question that um, uh, Lee mentioned here. How does it compare with the other, um, with the other ones? And uh, I will also bring in some thoughts from Meltzer as we go along. So, Chad, given that you've, uh, you and I have watched the uh, the other two together, I'll I'll start with you first because uh, I think you're interesting on on these guys. Um, the the second portion of this match, I think it really shifts from uh from Steamboat, and it's really when Flair starts throwing him over the top rope the first time. And you get that kind of judgment call uh, where the commentators talk about they don't disqualify him. And uh, from that point forward, you see uh, basic sequences where Steamboat will be in control and either one or two things will happen. Uh, he'll take a risk that he shouldn't have taken um, and then Flair will go on the advantage. Or I, I really think the way the match was structured and what the main narrative was, was Flair just has such uh, resourceful tactics where he can go deep into his reservoir of moves, his repertoire moves, and uh, kind of come out with stuff, whether it was a thumb to the eye, uh, a, a punch into the gut, throwing him over the top rope, these kind of advantage moves, even in the end uh, where he pulls it out with an inside cradle to get the eventual pinfall. You see that um, throughout the second part of this match, that when Flair goes on the advantage, it's usually when he's able to kind of do something, maybe not necessarily completely by the rule book, mm -hmm. but uh, something to gain the advantage. And he goes after, uh, I, I did, or like I said, when Steamboat takes a big risk, like him going to the top rope after he delivered the first chop from the top rope, uh, him falling to the floor and clutching his knee, you knew immediately that uh, Flair was going to pounce on that. And he did at the very end. So I, I did really, really like the kind of two uh, narratives of this match that I pulled out of. It's something that I didn't really remember as, as much. I, I, my memories of this match before were more action-based. I didn't really kind of remember the psychological aspects of this match. And I think it was a slower-paced match from uh, both the Chi-Town Rumble and the Clash 6 match overall. But it was, it was kind of ambitious in what they did. Because at the end, they did want you to, uh, to cheer for Flair. Uh, as as you'll see during the match, I think they wanted you to sort of see uh, what was going on and transpiring uh, to where you would cheer for Flair when he gets the victory, which Flair does get a huge pop when he gets the victory. 
And then as we go on with the post-match, that really solidifies Flair as a uh, newly faced baby face for the uh, company. So as far as ranking the matches overall, um, I've kind of, this has been a, an interesting journey to go through, but in kind of a weird fashion, I've ended up the same way I've always sort of thought about these three matches where I have the Clash match, uh, number one, I have this match, number two, and then I put the uh, Chi-Town Rumble match, number three. Yeah. But in rewatching all three of these matches, I would say I was not disappointed or let down uh, by any of them in this rewatch. Uh, now, just before I go to, to, to Lee and Jason here, um, I, I'll give you a... I was a little bit surprised by that greatest hits analysis there. Um, and it's definitely... I mean, I'll just read you this from Meltzer, okay? He says, The work was super stiff to the point that it was mind-boggling. From the 17-minute mark on, it was the best match I've ever seen live in this country. With only a few token spots, the normal flair repertoire was gone, and they did a series of completely new things, which is even more impressive since the last time they met on a big show, they had to do 55 minutes work of material. Um, and he, he, I won't read any more, but he, I mean, basically, if you think about it, there are there were a lot of like I don't recall seeing Flair do that. Uh, you know when he attacks Steamboat's head with the forearms? Yeah. Now, yeah, we have seen Flair kind of do short, sort of type forearms like that. But, um, the, like, he's done a forearm before, but the forearms that he gives Steamboat, there's, I think, three right in the corner, and they're three real overhead kind of haymaker-type forearms where he, you know, he really winds up and forearms Steamboat really stiff. Uh, they're, they're extremely stiff forearms, and that is something that I couldn't recall seeing uh, I know it's something that Ross mentions on commentary that it's rare for Flair to do that. So, so, so Lee, um, you basically suggested that you think this is the least of the three. Uh, would that be fair to say? Um, I, I, I would say this is um, better than the Rumble, actually. Although I would admit that of the three, the Rumble is the one that I've seen the least... Um, I think partly because of the when the Flair DVD came out, the Ultimate Collection, um, the Clash match and the um, and this match, the Wrestle War match, were both on that set. The Rumble match wasn't, um, which has contributed to my watching the second two a lot more. Um, but I I think that I've always preferred the Clash match of the three, and I think it might be. The, the psychology of it is a little more obvious. The fact that it's two out of three falls is, you know, it's a very easy thing to follow. Um, it gives it more of a, a a sporting feel, like there's real sort of tactics at play, you know, what happens when someone goes a fall down. Um, you know, and the, the finish as well with the uh, with the chicken wing. And the fact that a match that is as long as that match is and feels as short as it is, it's um, you know kind of the anti Butch Reed Ranger Ross match. <laughs> it's, it's you know it's a near hour match that feels like it's ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Um, so I but so I would I would agree with uh, Chad really. I, I would say Clash is is my favourite. Um, 
Wrestle War second, Rumble third. All of them superb and all very worth watching. Jason. Um, you know, I had this on a compilation tape um, that I got, you know, when I, in the late 90s and, and watched, you know, pretty steadily for a long time. So I, I've seen this one a lot more than I've seen the other two. And I haven't seen the other two recently. So I, I can't really say, like, this is my favorite one. I can't say it's the best one. Um, but I, I just think... The story is so wonderful. Um, the, the way the they work the crowd is is terrific. Um, one thing I notice about Steamboat, and this comes from a, um, I think something that um, Steamboat told Lance Storm, a story that Lance Storm related about the idea is when you're, um, you know, uh, when you're selling and and when somebody is, um, you know, when the heels on top of you you shouldn't just lay there and take it. You know, you, you, you should at least, you know, intermittently show signs of fighting back when you're down and trying to get the advantage and at least, at least trying to fight. And, and I noticed that a lot more in Steamboat matches now where I just, I, I see him, you know, of, you know, always trying to make an effort to be competitive. So even when, you know, the heel was beating him for a long time, um, that provides some variety, so it just it doesn't seem like a, a one-sided beating that sometimes, you know, heel control portions can be boring if they last too long or if they're done, you know, poorly or whatever. Not, not that would happen in a Flash Steamboat match, but still. Um, so, I, yeah, I, basically I just think the whole atmosphere, um, everything about it, and, and adding the post-match, which, you know, I guess you can separate, but it, it's, it's also a strong... You know, it, it, it's linked to the match as well. I think um, makes this my favorite of it. I also think for a, and I, I could be wrong about this, but for like, um, you know, somebody who's never seen a Steamboat Flare match before, this might be the, this might be the best entry match of the three. This one might be the most accessible. I, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, but I, I kind of feel like there's a good chance this would be the case. Um. Hmm. Well, you see, my my feeling is that this is the most technical of the three matches. Um, especially because, um, Steamboat has a very obvious like he's got a game plan here, and he sticks to the game plan, and it makes him seem much like, um, Clash of the Champions is a war, and it's a, it's not just any old it's not just a war it's a it's an epic war. Steamboat has a game plan there as well. Um, with the uh, you know with the work on the back and whatnot, but but here it's a lot more kind of uh, how can I put this chess like, um, and I was, I know that sounds ridiculous when they're slapping the shit out of each other, but it's a, it's a bit more of a chess match I I felt than um, than that. Um, the, the match I would recommend to a kind of newcomer would be the uh, Triton Rumble because it has it's short it has a lot of drama, has a lot of intensity, um, it feels like a massive deal, um, so, and, and it's probably like a t kind of textbook 20 minute main event type match, so, yeah, that, that's, that's the way I'd go with that, I, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Chad. Um, I, th I think they're, to me, if, uh, I think that's according to how the question is posed, I, I mean, to me, if, if somebody said, I want to watch the Flair Steamboat rivalry. I might start with the Chi-Town Rumble 
or maybe even their uh, Meadowlands match from 1984. But uh, I think if somebody said, I just, you know, say you have some wrestling fan 20 years from now that gets on the internet and says, I, I've heard a lot about this Ric Flair guy. Who's, what's he all about? Point me to a match that shows, you know, everything that's about him. I, this would be a match I would point to, I think, more than the Chi-Town Rumble match because in the beginning uh, of this match, you saw a lot of strutting and kind of the bravado of mm-hmm. Flair. And by the end, he's, you know, the the greatest NWA champion of all time, you know, by mm-hmm. regaining his title. So you really kind of get a full spectrum of the uh, greatest aspects of Flair's career in these 30 minutes. I'll tell you that uh, Dave Meltzer here says that um, five stars doesn't do this entire scenario justice. The match itself was a better live match than in Chicago. Most of uh, the people I've talked to who saw the pay-per-view felt it was the best of their three national matches, although some still opted for the New Orleans as being the best. So that was the kind of instant reaction there, that people were talking about it there and then as being the best of the three. Um, I think my... I'm not sure which way around. I think I'm higher on the uh, Tritown Rumble match than uh, than all of you, basically. Because um, I think it's a really, really good... Like, I mean, if I was to give an example... As I just said, if I was going to give an example of a great 20-minute main event match, it would be... That would be one of the matches I'd point to. And it has... I, I did think, Chad... I, I mean, you, you may disagree with this. Um, I felt that the intensity levels were slightly lower in this match than the other two. Um, there weren't there weren't so many extended chop suey sequences. I didn't like, but it could also be de- desensitization. You know, I'm, I'm just expecting it now. I don't know. Uh, that, I, I think I do disagree with that because I don't know if quantity-wise there was, but you did have where they chopped to each turnbuckle the spot Jason was talking about and you did have kind of more high risk intensity moments like where uh, Steamboat gets chopped over the guardrail or Flair gives a suplex onto the floor that I don't think you saw in that Chi-Town Rumble and 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 I mean I would, I'll just say that too I want to kind of bring in the caveat that to me you know me saying this is my second favorite is not a knock on the Chi-Town Rumble. I mean, again, if I'm giving star ratings on these three matches, I would I would give, uh, you know, the second and third match to Clash 6 and this match five stars. I'd probably give the Chi-Town Rumble four and three quarters maybe, but that's, you know, like I said, a, an absolute match of the year candidate in most years. Yeah. Uh, just in 1989 is such a loaded year. I, I guess another way of looking at it would be that and take any one of any one of these three matches and give them to another wrestler, and that's probably their career match, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Chi-Town Rumble match, I have that as the lowest of the three, but, you know, somebody that we've been relatively high on and surprised by, uh, you know, I don't think Lex Luger ever had as good a match as the Chi-Town Rumble match. I'll say that. Right, so... Let's move into the post-match then, um, and uh, I guess this may affect ratings a little bit. Where, because uh, Chad, on our, uh, we'll mention this at the end, but on on a on another recent show that you were involved with, uh, didn't you say that you always take the entire 
you take a post match to be part of the match? In uh, a, in a I, I, on the 80s sets that I participate in, I kind of, I do have a different voting uh, or rating for that. Like in this match, uh, by me saying this is my second favorite match of the series, that takes nothing into account um, of what happens in the post-match. But I'll just go ahead and say, like, if you take into account the post-match along with this match, then as an overall segment, I would rank this as my favorite, uh, kind of my favorite of the footage we saw uh, on the three shows. Okay, so let's get into that post-match then. Um, Jim Ross uh, hits the ring and congratulates uh, Flair, uh, who calls Steamboat the greatest champion he's ever faced. Terry Funk is there, and uh, quite kind of coyly, he gives his congratulations. He's being very polite. Um, and then he calls Flair the greatest champion in wrestling um, today. And then he kind of like, Jim Ross says thanks, and he kind of lingers around. And then Funk is like, no, one one thing more. Um, can I face you, basically, for the belt? Can I be your first challenger? And Flair says, well, Terry, there's a, there's a top ten challengers list here in the NWA. And um, Funk is kind of taken aback, and Flair says, well, you've been in Hollywood with Sylvester Sloan for the past five years while he's been wrestling and um, winning and uh, defending world titles. So what? why should he give Funk a, uh, a shot at his world title when there are ten more deserving guys there, basically? Funk's not in the top ten. Anyway, Funk kind of goes away and then he says one thing more and basically attacks... Um, erupts, goes crazy, and attacks um, Flair in what is an awesome moment. Um, he rams Flair into the table, and then he gets him up into a pile driver and pile drives him onto the table. Then he smashes his head with a chair, and he says, "Look at that horse-nosed, banana-nosed jerk." <laughs> so, uh, Lee, any thoughts on this little? Uh, famous post-match uh, moment. Absolutely one of my favourite angles of all time. Seriously, it's it's fantastic. It's a, it's a five-star angle following a five-star match. And what I really like about it is the way that it's so subtle and that both guys, you know, neither guys really kind of badgering each other, but they're both a bit taken aback where you see that Terry Funk's, you know, kind of joking about it he knows he's been in hollywood and and he knows there's a there's a top 10 but in his mind he thinks that flair is um kind of trying to elbow out a guy who's as a former world champion kind of you would think he w he would have the right to to step up to flair and say how about giving a an all-timer like me a, a crack at the title flair on the other hand is just coming out of a of this this epic match with Steamboat, the whole feud, it's finally behind him. He's got his title back. He's uh, hes drenched in sweat. And now here's this guy kind of, you know, in his eyes, is, is badgering him on. And he's kind of missing the subtlety of a Funk's joke. And he's taking it seriously like, well, you know, there's a there's a top ten. You can't just come in here and, and challenge me for the title. And then, and then crazy old Terry Funk just beating the daylights out of him. 
you know, breaking tables long before Sabu and the Public Enemy and, and ECW and all that. It's just, I just, I absolutely love it. I love it. Jason? Yeah, I, um, I love that it's, it's, it, there's no master plan here of evil. It's it's just a situation where, you know, Terry Funk gets offended um, and decides to become evil, essentially, based on it, or, or act evil. You know, it's, uh, I like that a lot better. It feels more natural when um, it happens that way, rather than it being, you know, some sort of master plot by um, the villain. Um and obviously it's just a, it's a vicious beating. It's, um, you know, it's, it's one of the greatest, um, post-match angles I've ever seen. And, uh, and coming on top of one of the greatest matches you've ever seen, it's just, it's picture perfect. It's wonderful. And it leads to a, a tremendous feud between, uh, Funk and Flair. Chad? Uh, yeah, not to get, Kind of too philosophical, and I echo what Jason and Lee have said already, but uh, to me, like, my favorite uh, kind of thing in life is certain moments, like when you have spontaneous moments, uh, and, and this really feels like that in a wrestling angle. This feels like something that started as just, uh, you know, as, as one thing, a congratulations and a half-hearted challenge. And really was turned into a moment that carried the promotion for most of the rest of the year. So, absolute amazing angle. So, I mean, Jason, your reading of this is slightly different from mine because my feeling was that Funk's politeness was slightly feigned here. That he kind of like he that he kind of had it in his mind that actually he wants to be the champion and that you know. Like, bear in mind that Flair is just called Steamboat, who had a three-month reign, the greatest champion he's ever faced. So Funk, who was the NWA champ for like a year, must be thinking, hold on a second, what about me? So I'd, I wonder if he's really as innocent as you're making out, Jason. Uh, well, I don't this? necessarily think he's innocent, uh, but I don't think he's going in there and planning to attack Ric Flair. Like, I think he's planning to... To, you know, he's going to make this half-hearted challenge. He expects Flair to be polite and say, you know, yeah, or, or you know, down the road or whatever. He doesn't really expect to um, be offended by Flair because let's face it, Flair's a little bit of a of a dick about it. I mean, he could have been a bit nicer and been a little polite, but he's, you know, I mean, it, there's one thing to mention the top ten, but then he mentions, oh, you've been off with Sylvester Stallone and blah blah blah. I mean, you know, I would take that as an insult if I'm Terry Funk. Chad, you got any thoughts on that? Do, do, do you think the politeness is real or feigned? I, I I think it's I think the politeness initially is real, but I do I I think it's more of a moment where when Fox snapped all those kind of slights and digs that have been coming his way uh, when they boiled over, they all boiled over. So, where, you know, when Flair calls Steamboat the greatest champion, that may have been something Terry in his head thought, well, wait a minute, he only had a three-month reign. But he didn't say, oh, I'm definitely going to beat this guy's ass now for saying that. But in the aftermath, you know, when he goes back to the locker room after he's snapped and 
destroyed Ric Flair. I can I can see it as almost in an argument sense, you know, Terry saying, and another thing, how dare you, you know, bringing up past stuff, uh, kind of in the after effect. Um, has anybody watched Paradise Alley starring uh, Sylvester Stallone? Because <laughs> uh, no. looking at it, cameos include Ted DiBiase, Bob Roop, Dick Murdoch, Dory Funk Jr., Don Knoedel, Gene Kanitsky, Dennis Stamp, Ray Stevens, um, and obviously Terry Funk is in it as well. Has anybody seen that film? Jason, that seems like it might be something that you may have checked out at some point. I I have not, no, but I'm interested. That's a lot of West Texas guys, um, you know, for the most part. So um, that's, that you know, that might be worth just a, uh, you know, curiosity check out. No, I, I, I was interested by the idea of Funk having like a Hollywood career. Did he really at this point? I, I see he was in a film called Over the Top. That's the I've uh, seen that. That's the arm wrestling film, right? I did. I, yeah. no, I've seen that. But I never knew Terry Hunk was uh, Terry Funk was in it. Yeah, he's he's one of the. You know, you know, near the end where he's been pursued by a couple of guys. He's in. Um, you know, there's the the rich guy that wants the kid, basically, and he's in his mansion. Um, yeah. One of the guys that goes after Stallone in the mansion is Terry Funk, and um, Scott Norton's in the film as well. <laughs> I think plays in it because Scott Norton obviously was a was an arm wrestler before a, a pro wrestler, yeah. um, legitimately. So that's how he um, gets in the movie. Of course, who is the best? Uh, who is the best wrestling arm wrestler? Everybody, it's Ice Train. <laughs> Did you anybody remember that Ice Train winning the Jesse Ventura arm wrestling challenge? I had apparently blocked that from my memory, but yeah, but you know, if you hey, if, if you want to make that argument, I go for it. <laughs> okay, um, of course, uh, Billy Graham also uh, had an arm wrestling match that we saw, Chad. Um, Joe uh, <laughs> Joe Patasino. Patasino. Yeah, have I said that right? Um, he's Joe Patasino. Yeah. Joe Patasino is with Nikita Koloff, and what? What in the name of God is going on with this guy's neck? Like, <laughs> who is this ridiculously fat man? Um, you don't know who Joe Pedicino is? I um, I like I have not. How long was he with uh, WCW? I, I I don't recall seeing him too many times. Well, he, yeah, he's he's not with them very long because uh, after this point in time, he ends up becoming. Uh, I, I know by 1990 he starts uh, working in USWA uh, on Texas commentary, right. and then eventually he becomes uh, one of the uh, kind of finance guys for Global. But at, at this point in time, he still should have been running his uh, Georgia his Georgia wrestling block, which was. Uh, pro wrestling this week, which on Saturday night would be about a seven to eight hour block of wrestling uh, straight through on Saturday night syndicated. Him and uh, his his real life wife Bonnie Blackstone, which which you need to Google her part. I think you'll be kind of alarmed at what she looks like. I'm going to do that right now, uh, uh, knowing that she's married to Joe Pedicino. Uh, just a very quick story on that. My first wrestling show of all time, I got my picture taken with Bonnie Blackstone, which but uh, she definitely has like kind of a, a, a pretty attractive, I'd say, 80s look to her. What the but hell? Growing, 
See, growing up as a kid, though, I, I mean, I'd, I'd put Bonnie Blackstone up there with Miss Elizabeth. Like, wow. as a six-year-old, I thought she was, like, the best-looking woman in the world. Well, she looks she looks nicer than uh, Linda Curry. Yeah, oh, I, she's, she's not a bad-looking lady to be with Joe, but that's, that's who Joe is. He's a big Georgia guy. So what was what was he doing to get in her uh, knickers? Like, I don't know. What's she that? was a she was um, genuinely a huge wrestling fan, I think, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. She, um, I mean, I have. Uh, she had him, her, and Joe. Every once in a while, have they've been at indie shows that I've uh, attended around the area here. And I mean, you know, as far as being engaged and still knowing halfway about the product and remembering old stuff. I mean, I'll say for starters, they're a lot more engaging than Robert Gibson was at the last indie show I went to uh, a few months ago. They were they were all three there, and uh, I talked to Bonnie Blackstone a couple times, told her about that, and uh, other people. I overheard her talking to other people, and she still has you know a knowledgeable framework of the business. And Robert Gibson was over there, kind of shilling his. <laughs> photos and taking pictures and stuff like that and seemed really out of it so but, um, I, she's definitely a genuine fan Joe Pedicino like he is he has got a ridiculous neck I mean he, he makes uh, Paul Bearer look um, look kind of skinny like he, he's a big guy isn't he oh yeah he's a big guy well I, guess I, I like Joe Pedicino though I think he's a good announcer um, so well, I, I, I've just written here something which is going to sound sacrilegious, but I just said he's no Sean Mooney. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Koloff is the uh, guest rep. Just, um, just in oh. one little um, trivia note, Bonnie Blackstone was actually with the WWF um, in 1993 in a very uh, blink and you'll miss it run. She actually was in that Sean Mooney role, um, or what kind of kind of more like a, a mean gene role after Auckland had left. Um, she did a few podium interviews and things like that, but I don't think anyone... I, I don't remember her at that time, but I've seen it the footage since. So, um, yeah, she was around. Yeah, I, don't, I definitely don't recall her in WWF. Um, so, yeah, anyway, Nikita Koloff is the guest ref... Uh, coming up for the next uh, match and he um, says a few things in a dodgy Russian accent um, so the next match here for the uh, world uh, tag team titles, the Varsity Club that's uh, Mike Rotunda and Steve Williams against uh, the Row Warriors, now is there any reason why Flair Steamboat didn't go on last? Like, that's what I was about to ask you if Meltzer alluded to any reason no, for it's, that, it's not mentioned here but I, I was wondering maybe if it was the same uh, idea as the last show, where they had like a couple of matches after the main event, even though we didn't see them on the on the broadcast. My 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 thought is that because it was a sixty minute time limit, um, they these were like the standby matches that. Um, if it had gone 60 minutes, then they wouldn't have had these. But since they it didn't go 60 minutes, and these are the matches they have afterward. Yeah, they, they would sense. do that. They would do that fairly often around this time. Um, so th they're taking on the Row Warriors. Um, they dominate the start. The the, the Warriors, obviously. Um, and Koloff uh, sends Kevin Sullivan to the back pretty uh pretty early on here, back to the locker room with him. Just 
show his um you know he he, he this isn't Randy don't call me Pee Wee Anderson here this is Nikita Koloff um he gets in Williams's face too um and they spend most of the match uh, drawing back and forth we get a drop kick by Rotunda but Animal Scoop uh, power slams him coming from the top Hawk gets the better of Williams um and clotheslines him uh, from the apron to the outside but then um uh he hits his shoulder on the post um, and Williams nails it uh, on the railings. The Warriors come back though and uh, they get a, they manage to get Steve Williams isolated and double close uh, line him. Uh, they get the Doomsday device but then Spivey and Sullivan attack Nikita Koloff and they also attack Nick Patrick outside the ring. The bell goes for a DQ and uh, Jim Ross and Bob Coddle are just absolutely disgusted by this heinous attack by the Varsity Club. Um, so obviously uh, the Warriors win by DQ and the Heels keep the title in this five-minute match. Jason, um, I mean it was fine. It was you know obviously a sprint. Um, I uh, I thought uh, Hawk looked a little bit more spry than normal. Um, I liked the bumps that he took on the on missing the clothesline into the post. Uh, and actually, the big clothesline off the apron right before that on Dr. Death was cool. Um, I thought the visual of the Road Warriors picking up a guy the size of Steve Williams and doing the Doomsday Device was um, nifty. Um, and I don't recall ever seeing the Varsity Club have the cheerleaders be part of their entrance before, so that was kind of... Um, that was different. And um, I also noticed that Nikita Koloff looks a lot like a mini Kurgan with hair. <laughs> Lee? Yeah, not much um, Not much to say about the match, really. Um, it was kind of, it was almost like they'd gone back to the earlier point of the show, you know, with these um, short matches that didn't really mean a whole lot. Um, obviously, you know, this meant more as a, as a title match and there was... Um, you know, there was more going on with call-off as the referee and that kind of thing, but it was a very unsatisfying finish where, you know, clearly they didn't want to, they, they didn't want to or couldn't have the Road Warriors lose, but they didn't want the title change or or they didn't want the titles on the Road Warriors because I think they um, didn't, Rotunda and Williams get stripped of the titles after this. Yes, uh, yeah, we, we, we're going to come come on to that in a second, but uh, yeah, pretty much. They, yeah, they did. Um, not not much of a match, really. Not a lot to it. Um, the the um, the Doomsday Device on Steve Williams. I mean, I, I I was actually on the edge of my seat for that, watching it. You know, earlier today, in fact. Um, but by and large, it really wasn't such a great match, to be honest. Any other thoughts, Chad? I actually thought for the time it was given, it was pretty good. It was better than I thought. Uh, they kind of slugged it out, um, which was pretty nice. I agree the Doomsday device was very good. Uh, but, yeah, most, mostly it's just a kind of quick power match, so not a, not a lot going on. All right, well, let's move on, because the next match is the Varsity Club again, uh, this time Spivey and uh, Kevin Sullivan against Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner. And uh, this was a very odd thing. There was a hair versus hair stipulation for this match um, that was announced and it was, it was in the build um, that if uh, 
basically whoever lost had to have their haircut. It was Gilbert or Sullivan who were going to get their haircut. But it's uh, just mentioned by the commentators that this stipulation has been removed, uh, which I thought was a bit odd. And we're told that the NWA board are meeting right now about Spivey and Sullivan's actions uh, in attacking the ref in such a heinous manner. Um, the uh, the heels jump uh, the faces to start here. And Spivey um, rams uh, Steiner's shoulder into the post repeatedly to injure it. Um, Sullivan and Gilbert go toe-to-toe -to -toe in the ring. So Gilbert is our face in peril uh, here. Um, Steiner is hurt. Uh, Gilbert has to go it alone by the looks of things. And he uh, he also looks tiny versus uh, Spivey here, who is um, almost seven foot tall. Sullivan keeps uh, sneak attacking uh, Steiner to keep him hurt outside. Um, he still hasn't been able to get his uh, jacket off. Um, the heels are um, decimating Gilbert uh, in the ring. We get a drop kick uh, by Spivey. Uh, he's six foot eight, so that's uh, quite a visual. We get a side slam by Spivey. Um, Gilbert is taking quite a beating here. Uh, then we get a hot tag to a one-armed Steiner, but the ref disallows that hot tag. Um, he manages to get a clothesline in anyway on Sullivan, and Gilbert um, covers for three. So, nice little story, but a short match. Um, and I'll just mention real quick that the, uh, the Varsity Club have been stripped of the uh, world tag titles due to the attack on Nick Patrick um, and Nikita. Um, so pretty harsh judgment there by the NWA board, but you know you, you don't attack uh, NWA officials and get away with it. <laughs> and uh, we get a recap of um, Funk's attack on Flair, and uh, Flair's neck is injured by all accounts. So, what do we think of this last match? And also give me your thoughts on the show as a whole. And Chad, I'll go to you first. Um, probably one of the weirdest last matches on a major show you'll ever see. Uh, not a very good match here. I thought this was worse than the last one. Uh, really not a whole lot to say. Uh, the only spot that I did really like in this match was there was a point where Kevin Sullivan, once Steiner was neutralized, Kevin Sullivan drug Eddie Gilbert over to his corner uh, and acted like he was going to help him tag out to Steiner, uh, making him realize that he had no partner. But... Uh, this was kind of a basic match, and the show overall, I think, is below the uh, the other two shows uh, we saw previously, the Clash 6 and the Chi-Town Rumble show. I would still call this show good because of the uh, Flair Steamboat match, and I did like the uh, Samoan SWAT team Dynamic Dudes match, and the uh, at least the Luger-Hayes match was, I thought, decent, but uh, I, I definitely have it below those other two shows. Lee, um, it's it's actually funny that you say, you know, kind of a, a weird match to end the pay per view on. Um, Rick Steiner was actually involved in an even weirder pay per view ending tag match. If uh, you remember, I'm, I'm sure you guys will get to it. The '91 Great American Bash. If you've seen that, with yeah, I was uh, just thinking of that. Is it Arn and uh, Paulie? Dangerously. Yeah, against against Rick Steiner and Missy Hyatt, and that where where Missy gets uh, abducted by the hardliners. Yeah, that's that such a weird one. That's such a weird one. <laughs> yeah, but I, I I did think it was kind of was Rick Steiner um, genuinely injured here because he really does nothing apart from he comes in 
hits Sullivan with a killer clothesline at the end, but you know he gets posted early on, and and that's pretty much it for his involvement, you know, in the ring. Um, Dave Meltzer says Steiner tore his bicep two nights earlier in Montgomery, and we've been right. told there is no way that he could work this match, nor uh, at work at all for at least a month. So that basically accounts for for why it was done in this way. That's just very strange, though, because. If that's the case, you you kind of question why this match went on last, and you also kind of question why Gilbert and Steiner retain the titles if the new. Then again, I, I think the uh, the US titles kind of vanished after this, didn't they, for for several months? Hmm. Um, well, I think I think I think Gilbert and Steiner were the last champions until the tournament in early '90 that Pillman and Zenk one. I seem I seem to have a memory of uh, the resurrected Freebirds, the Garvin Hayes version of it, having a run with those US titles as, in 1990 at some point. Yeah, I think I think they were in the the finals of the tournament with Pillman and Z-Man. Chad, you, you've basically watched all of 1990 recently, so. Yeah, that's that's true. It's uh, it's the Freebirds versus Pillman and Zink. Pillman and Zink uh, win the belt, and then they feud with the Midnight Express yeah. over the U.S. title. Uh, if you think about it, this is kind of the blow off for the um, the these two matches in a sense are kind of a blow off for the Varsity Club feud or the stable, really, because they kind of go their separate ways right, at, right after this. And, and you, you you kind of get, I guess, like, I can see what they're kind of going for in the sense of this is kind of Rick Steiner's final moment of glory over Kevin Sullivan after Kevin Sullivan's been tormenting him for, you know, a, a couple of years, essentially. Um, so, you know, maybe they wanted to offer that and they wanted to offer a moment that... Um, that, uh, you know, was in the fans' home happy, so to speak, as opposed to a non-finish with the Varsity Club and the Road Warriors or or what have you. Well, a, a couple of months after this, um, at, the, at the Great American Bash, there is the Steiners, Rick and Scott against Kevin Sullivan, Michael Sunder, but you are right that by that point, um, Spivey was already teaming with Sid Vicious in the skyscrapers and um, Steve Williams had turned babyface, and he was uh, with the the Road Warriors and the Midnights in that that War Games match. But um, right. yeah, it's kind of is. It does feel kind of conclusive of that. So, are we saying that this is a one match show? Because it has been suggested to me that this is one of the better pay per views out there. Or, or um, what do we feel like? To, let's say that the Flare Steamboat. Um, let's say that the Flare Steamboat match didn't happen, and we only had the rest of the card. Do you give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down? If Flare Steamboat doesn't happen on this card, it's a thumbs down for me, pretty clearly. I agree. And you yeah, and e- easy thumbs down for me. Right. Okay. Yeah, I'd, 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 uh, I'd actually go along with that. I think this is a pretty spotty card, all in all. And the Varsity Club stuff feels messy at the end here. Um, all of it does. Yeah, you know, if it had an eight-man tag, that kind of would have made some sense. Yeah. I guess they won the titles on the line and everything, but that would have at least, like, um, you could have, um, you know, uh, uh, given it a little more time by not doing the separate entrances and that kind of thing. Um, but, um, 
and uh, you know they may have been running out of time too. Obviously, um, you know with the Oakus Boys concert and maybe, you know maybe timing the show. Everything in the last two matches did feel pretty rushed. I I think there's an odd mix of guys in this card, like old WF guys, like or just old guys in general. Um, you know, old NWA guys who who who've been there for years young people coming through it's, it's just kind of a, feels like we're in the middle of something changing here um yeah it's a, it's a bit strange this michael hayes is a singles guy all yeah. a bit strange um and, and it's a change in booking regime too so you, this yeah. does feel very much like they're going in a different direction they're kind of sorting everything out yeah that's that's a good point jason so we we've come to the point now where we dish out the uh, end of show awards um, so, match of the night. Uh, I'm just going to say, is anybody not going to go for Flair Steamboat? No. Um, <laughs> well, I really did enjoy Ranger Ross, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I think across the board, we're going to say uh, Flair Steamboat is match of the night. Um, MVP, I think that's a more interesting question. And, uh, Lee, I will go to you first. Well... Um, obviously, there's there's Flair and Steamboat are the two guys that have that match, and it's kind of difficult to pick one over the other. And this might be a, a cop out and might seem unfair, but in an effort to pick one person, um, I'm going to pick Terry Funk because you know I don't want to say it's Flair and not Steamboat. I don't want to say it's Steamboat and not Flair. Just the fact that you know those two guys had this match such an incredible match, such a hard-fought match, and then Terry Funk was just that much of a dick to do what he did to Flair after the match was uh, pretty fantastic. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's always made me sad that at the 93 King of the Ring after Bret Hart and, and Mr. Perfect had their match, that Perfect didn't deck Bret. Because as a, as a fan, I would have been so furious, so angry, and... Uh, you know, I, I think that was a missed opportunity here. It's not, and um, and Funk's performance was uh, was every bit as exceptional. It, you know, not as um, he obviously didn't work as hard as as these two guys, um, but he absolutely gave a, a terrific pom- performance. So I, I'm going to go with Terry Funk. Does, doesn't uh, Lawler come and shit all over? Oh, he did, yeah, he, yeah, at the end of the night. But I think, in fairness, I would have preferred uh, months of Bret Hart, Mister Perfect matches than. Than Bret Hart Jerry Lawler matches. That SummerSlam match is pretty great, though. It is, yeah, I do like that a lot. But it's hey, having watched a lot of Coliseum videos and watched a lot of those uh, those ten minute dark matches they had, oh, <laughs> not pretty. Okay, uh, Jason, MVP. Uh, I'm gonna go with Ricky Steamboat's son. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, he riding the pony, um, he did a nice job there, and I do feel like if he's ever called up to WWE, because I think he's still in their developmental, um, like, you know, is that going to be, like, something where, like, <clears throat> they show that to embarrass him, or, like, you know, some sort of, um, you know, is he ever going to live that kind of stuff down, so I, I, um, I'm going to pick Ricky Steamboat's kid, since every other choice is obvious. Now, 
Chad, we, we've never overruled a choice here, and we, we did allow the Atomic Elbow to pick uh, Shaska Watley for MVP once, but are we going to allow this? I mean, is this going to stand in the record books here that Jason Mann gave Steamboat Jr. MVP? <laughs> if, if, if Jason is convicted and uh, giving it to Richie, uh, I'm, I'm fine with that. So, so what's your pick going to be? Uh, my pick's going to be Flair. I thought he gave a majestic performance, really solidified himself as a top baby face, looked extremely sympathetic, getting his ass beat by Terry Funk. Uh, just a great performance overall. Now, uh, I'm just trying to think of... Uh, now, how, I've basically gone with Steamboat every time, haven't I, so far? Uh, yeah, the first two you went with Steamboat. Do, do you know what? My honest feeling is that my my reasons have been different for every single time, but I'm also going to go with Steamboat again today, um, and I'll tell you why. I think his psychology in in this match is outstanding. Um, you know, working on the arm, working on the back, like from a storytelling point of view, he he couldn't have done it any better. Um, and you know, I'm a massive uh, Ric Flair fan. As as anybody who's talked to me for any amount of time knows um, but one of the things I always think about Ric Flair is that he doesn't really he's not a big psychology guy it's almost like he kind of makes things he makes things up as he goes along um, and I think that Steamboat forced him to have a really focused match here he was the guy driving the story of this match uh, from start to finish so that that's why I'm going to give it to uh, you know obviously these are two great ring generals um, but I think that Steamboat is a different type of ring general to Ric Flair, and he is the guy who gave this match structure. So that's uh, that's my reasoning. So we come to the moment where we give out the Billy Graham Award for the least valuable player, and I'll I'll go in reverse order this time. So I'll start with you, Chad. And now ton of options, honestly. Even though I didn't think the show was that good, a lot of stuff was kind of squash matches or whatever. So I, I guess I'll go with our buddy Ranger Ross, just because that was a match that was given some time, and he looked uh, pretty horrible in it until the very last moment before the finish. So I will go with Ranger Ross. Jason? Uh, I'm going to go with the Iron Sheik. I uh, just didn't seem to be bringing much uh, to the table and um, was, um, you know, look again, looking pretty feeble out there. It's kind of sad, wasn't he? Kind of pale, kind of shadow of who he used to be at this point. Yeah. Um, Lee? Uh, I think that the uh, the two leading candidates have already been named Ranger Ross and the Iron Sheik, so I'm going to pick the uh, horse that Richie Steamboat rode in on. <laughs> actually, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually going to say Hiro Matsuda. I don't understand his value to the promotion whatsoever other than um, the WWF has Mr. Fuji so he is our Japanese heel manager um, because I, I don't I don't understand what he adds as, as a presence, as a character as an interview as you know mm. as, a, as a representative for someone and at least Mr. Fuji had that sort of classic look to him, I just I just don't understand Matsuda's appearance here at all. That, that makes him a two-time winner of the uh, 
of the uh, Billy Graham Award, and uh, Ranger Ross is also a two-time winner now. Uh, I um I I actually think that he might be a victim of uh of booking changes as well. Like George Scott clearly went big on the idea of Hiro Matsuta's corporation, and by this point he's still hanging around, but there's no focus on it at all, which is a bit strange. Do you know what I mean? So um. Was he was he around this time um, with Flair prior to Flair's turn? Well, theoretically, he's with still with Flair, right? Because he was was he slated as as kind of the new JJ Dillon, if you remember um, the uh, the four horsemen, as it were, with yeah. with Flair and and Kendall Windham. I mean, I just can't imagine he, Matsuda he, leading that group. He took over. Um, Barry Windham and Ric Flair's contract after J.J. Dillon. Right, yeah. And then he added Michael Hayes and um, some uh, the blackmailer to his uh, <laughs> to his um, stable. Um, I'm gonna. I cannot not go for Ranger Ross. <laughs> so uh, I pick Ranger Ross um, as my. Just you, just you wait till Clash Seven. I, I, I honestly can't He's wait. He's gonna. He's going to turn that around. <laughs> All right, guys. I'll be, well, I'll be surprised if his opponent doesn't get the uh, get the nod for the Billy Graham Award. I was very. Um, uh, ha- this is probably the longest show we've done, but uh, I thought it was good fun uh, talking through it. And uh, th- I think we'll lead. We we leave comments to the clash shows now. Uh, Chad, right? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. We'll do comments on the clutch. Yeah. Let's not do comments at this point. Um, I will uh, d- just before we say goodbye here. I, I thought we'd uh, we'll make a very brief mention of our appearances on uh, what's that? What are they calling that show? The the eighties wrestling party. And uh, uh, why didn't you tell us what what's that? A, what, what that is about, Chad? Uh, basically, uh, Good Helmet or Will has assembled. Uh, kind of a hodgepodge of guys to go through the 1980s AWA disc with him. Uh, so you sync up and watch the matches together and kind of comment, joke around on it. and It's pretty good fun. Easy way to kill two hours watching wrestling. Yeah, so, so Chad is on episode one, uh, which is already done, and uh, both of us are on episode two. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's good fun. Uh, if you're not watching that AWA set, I don't know uh, how entertaining it will be or not. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd say you need a baseline familiarity with what's going on in that promotion. Uh, right. To it's kind, of, it's kind of like an audio commentary on the DVD or something like that. Yeah, it, it's very different from what this show is doing, and uh, I think it's uh, intended more as a community thing, right, than as a. But you know, if you're interested, check it out. So. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Lee and uh, Jason. Uh, I thought you guys had some really interesting thoughts this evening. Um, check out uh, Lee's book. It's definitely worth picking up. And uh, thank you very much, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. It's been, it's been a real pleasure, a lot of fun talking to you guys. Um, very cool. And you just uh, you enjoy Clash of the Champions 7, particularly Ranger Ross and the match after that one. <laughs> I will do. And thank you as well. I, I enjoyed it again. See you next week, Chad. All right. See you, Barb.
fans for all of us here at WCW Center Stage. For Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.